Welcome back to the Get Cyber Resilient Show. Today is our first in the news episode for season four and our 64th episode overall. My name is Dan McDermott and I'll be your host for today. One of our resident cybersecurity experts, Garrett O'Hara, unfortunately won't be joining us today. Gara is feeling unwell. We've been told it's not COVID, which is good news. I think it's just being run down from working too hard. So we wish Gar a speedy recovery and look forward to hearing his dulcet tones again next week. Today, my co-pilot and expert is Bradley Singh, and we will be exploring the hot topics of how Australia, along with other countries, have come out and named China as the perpetrator of the Microsoft attack. We'll review how Australian organisations have been quietly paying millions in ransom from the tsunami of cyber crimes. We'll explore the focus on boards becoming liable for cyber attacks and finish with a deep dive into two of the highest profile attacks recently. The Pegasus spyware sold to authoritarian governments to track activist activities and the supply chain ransomware attack against Kaseya, impacting their managed service providers and end user clients. Brad, welcome back to the show. As always, a lot has happened in the last month since we spoke, including being back in lockdown, which is not so good. But let's kick things off today by reviewing how Australia and other nations have come out and explicitly named China as the instigator of the Microsoft attack. What can you tell us, I guess, about this and the, some of the reasons why, you know, someone like Australia, who have been pretty conservative over the years of not actually naming nation states and, and, and attributing blame often, have now actually taken this, this I guess, proactive step? Yeah, no, certainly, Dan, and the attribution is something we've talked about before. But look, before that, thanks again for having me on the show, and thanks to our listeners for joining us again in season four. Um, personally, I found it a little bit hard to. I've had no outlet for the news. Like so much stuff has been happening, so it's really awesome to be able to share this with everyone. Um, in terms of attribution and kind of what we've heard very recently from the Home Affairs Minister, um, in terms of the Microsoft Exchange hack at the start of the year. Haffinum, if anyone remembers that, we're going through so many different names, but they are making Wikipedia entries. <laughs> There's a lot of history being created as well, which is probably not the greatest thing, but hey, we're learning at least at the same time. Um, effectively, what happened is uh, Australia and its allies have come out six months post this incident, publicly attributing China to the attack, or at least Chinese-based groups. Um, it's kind of interesting if you look around the world, like the EU haven't gone as far to directly call it a nation state attack, but they're saying that, you know, it's potentially some elements coming from China. It's kind of a new world we live in, right? Like it's the, instead of the individual person hacking you or, uh, you know, maybe somebody just going after a monetary gain, maybe there's a political ambition behind it. Um, I also read a report this morning, and, and again, it's kind of hard to verify that um, a whole range of universities in China have just been targeted by American-based hackers. So, going both ways by the look of it. Yeah, there's no doubting it feels like it is an escalation of the notion of cyber war, right? And that it is actually, you know, getting to that sort of level and, and becoming part of the narrative as to, you know, what is actually happening between countries and what will that mean? Um, we see a lot of commentary, you know, like in the news now about what will be the ramification of this, right? I think that's going to be really interesting to to see this play out. Um, as you say, we sort of see, you know, sort of some attacks going back the other way. What will China's response be to being named and being called out explicitly? Um, what will that mean from here? And it feels like it will just be an escalation in many ways. And I think many commentators have also said, so what was 
what was the point of doing this? Like, you know, like all you're doing is this sort of poking the bear a bit, right? Um, you know, and sort of China has been slapped with the wet lettuce leaf a little bit in terms of like, you know, being named. Um, but boo-hoo, what, what from here? So definitely I think a watching brief on this one. And, uh, and you know, it is, it's concerning though, right? Because it feels as though it is it could escalate and could result in something else and we don't want you know bigger attacks and greater you know unforeseen sort of societal impacts if you like flowing on from from a cyber attack as we saw it like colonial pipeline or you know the healthcare provider in, in germany last year and those those societal impacts that actually the, that ripple out from from these cyber attacks in the first place that, that's a great example of like what is the repercussion because like we, we all pay attention to the news like it's a very geopolitical tense world at the moment uh, i think i was reading the other day that uh, england is um gonna uh, sail their H hms uh, england sorry <laughs> messing it up what is it called their their, their their key flagship um aircraft carrier task force group right so the aircraft carrier and its escort they're gonna sail that kind of uh, i guess near china right for the first time in a long time that's about all you can do, right? Like, aside from that, you can do a lot of grey warfare or asymmetrical warfare, as they call it. Um, what is the response? I guess the other side just starts doing it as well. Like, where does it end? Do, do you start doing things like sanctions? I think we've seen evidence of that. But does it also become something that governments can't control? Like, I think to a degree right now, it's it's, it's working in their favour. But these hackers, at the end of the day, like, they're trying to get money. They're, they're trying to get revenue. They're trying to survive the government tells them not to do something, they still need to make money. Like it's, it's, it's not like that ecosystem is dismantled unless there's really good legislation. And that's back to some of the points we've talked about before. And I think we're seeing in the media right now, like it's all around the idea of the only way to destabilize this is to destroy the ecosystem behind it, right? Yeah. And as you say, I mean, that is, you know, getting to the point of being able to, you know, what is it? Know, know your customer or KYC in terms of like ransomware payment or Bitcoin payments, aka ransomware payments, right? Um, and then therefore not being able to sort of um, make those anonymous and actually, you know, be able to track who is involved in that and know the chain of that of that flow of that money. Um, you know, at the moment that you can't track that, that creates this environment where it does become, you know, easy for, easy for them to actually claim the funds and actually get the money coming, flowing through. So there are so many angles that need to be looked at to, to look at stopping this. Um, and, um, you know, I think we say that we're, we're sort of at the pointy end of it right at the moment, it feels. And certainly Australia have been, you know, the government have announced the ransomware task force, which is, you know, a good step forward. But again, like, you know, is that going to be active and, and proactive enough to, uh, to to be able to make some of these changes? And Australia alone can't do it either, right? It is a problem on a global scale. So a lot to play out and a lot, and a lot to see here. Moving to the next story that, uh, that we've looked at, which is we know that ransomware has been a, a plague um, for a long time now, um, and it just keeps growing and growing. But we're actually starting to now see reports around the fact that Australian organisations are actually having to pay out millions and millions of dollars to these hackers um, as part of this 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 pandemic of, of cyber that is going on. Um, what can you tell us about you know Australians paying ransomware? Yeah, like, so this data came out uh, quite recently in, in terms of report from the ACSC. Um, we can share the details about it kind of in the show notes, but 
There's a couple of, I guess, key kind of things. So one third of Australian organisations hit by ransomware attacks paid the ransom. So that's one third, which that seems like a large amount, right? Like I'm just thinking out loud here, like that that's a lot. So that's a significant amount. Um, these payments were encouraged, which encouraged further attacks are typically kept secret. And this comes back down to, I think, the disclosure rules around a ransom. And I believe, and I could be wrong, I don't think you actually have to disclose a ransom. You have to notify the... Well, you meant to notify the, the OAIC if you uh, have had a data breach, but I don't know if a ransom always technically falls into that no, bucket, you don't. right? And that's then right. I also... Like, there is yeah. no mandatory disclosure of, of ransom as such, and that's one of the the elements that the government's obviously looking at is, is you know, shining a light on it, right? And which you're doing here with uh, with this report as well. And I always wanted to just, I was always thought about the uh, mandatory data breach laws because I know they came in. I remember when they came in. We like there was a big song and noise about them, and everyone was talking about them nonstop for, for every every month it seemed. But what like how mandatory is it? Like I just wonder like how many of like what what breaches are actually going underreported, and what is the grey area here? And then there's also that that link back to I think national security to a degree where like. We're not always, it seems like some breaches aren't being disclosed straight away because it's like we want to get more information out of it or, again, yeah, there could be some type of intel intelligence gathering there as well. So it's just crazy though. Like I thought these statistics were just absolutely ridiculous, but I think it correlates and proves everything we're seeing in terms of why, again, the ecosystem of ransomware exists and why it's becoming a bigger problem. Like we've got the data right there. Uh, One third of Australian organisations paid the ransom. Yeah, and, and the research from the ACSC and even in Mimecast's own research over the last 12 months, we've, we've, we see that up to 64% of organisations surveyed um, admitted that they have, um, you know, been the subject of a ransomware attack. I mean, th- that's enormous, right? It, it's nearly two-thirds of all organisations. Um, so the breadth of the problem is, is growing. There's no doubting that. Um, and then, like you say, like, um, you know, a number of people are paying that ransom. We also saw that um, only about half who paid the ransom actually got their files back. Um, so right, really? There's a, you know, just because you pay doesn't mean that, uh, you know, I mean, they are cyber criminals at the end of the day, that they're going to uphold their end of the bargain and that you know, they got the money and, and then they didn't actually uphold their end of the bargain or provide the keys or return the data either. So, and there's no doubting that there is a link between data breach and ransomware because often you know files will be exfiltrated and there will be a breach of data as part of the ransom right and then oh you can get more money right like if it, one thing is the aspect of the business unable to to keep running but if you then have data which you can blackmail yeah. solicit information it's just so much more powerful um i was thinking about the idea and, and again we talk about legislating the idea of potentially not paying the ransom but it's kind of not a great idea but you know if it gets to the point where it's illegal to pay the ransom, but a company wouldn't be prosecuted if it was life-saving for them to pay the ransom, let's say they delivered an essential service, right? Would hackers then start targeting those types of companies like hospitals, healthcare, more because they, they're actually the only ones who can, can pay the ransom. So you got to be really careful in terms of how you legislate this and, and kind of, I guess, set the rules. And then back to your point, there's only a 50% chance you're going to get the data back anyway. So maybe the legislation should be more around resilience like you know having backups having copies because we know it's going to happen so i guess legislating backups is probably a hard thing to do but something about data integrity right or the integrity of service yeah it's not an easy one to solve but it certainly is uh like you say you don't want those unintended consequences of saying well 
It's illegal to pay it except if you're in these industries. So guess who where all the focus goes, right? Straight to those industries that um, that are then become even more vulnerable, which is obviously not the idea. So it's a tough one, but it's a one that is also being looked at, you know, being addressed, I guess, through the notion of how do we make boards more accountable as well um, and look at, you know, what is the role of sort of company directors and their liability um, as part of sort of these cyber breaches as well. Um, what's going on in this space and is this something that, you know, we think will make a meaningful impact on, um, you know, on, I guess, accountability and therefore hopefully, I guess, is the idea is, is that, if boards are more aware and more accountable, that they're actually able to provide, release the funding for, you know, our IT and security teams to actually take those proactive steps and put the right measures in place to, uh, to, to become more resilient. Yeah, certainly. So I think this originally came about the idea of making boards more accountable in the 2020 cybersecurity white paper. And I think it was more of just like a recommendation back then, but quite recently it's hit the media a lot. Um, I think it's been debated or at least brought up within Parliament a couple of times. Um, I think it's absolutely fantastic. And I think already to a degree under the notifiable data breach laws, like I I thought a company director could already be potentially liable, but I guess this makes the actual board more accountable. It makes a lot of sense in terms of what I hear from, you know, our customers or or just, you know, IT teams and, and people in IT security where, they've still got that challenge of trying to get budget for cybersecurity, like, and they need to go to the board for that. So if the board are accountable and they, they start to understand the, I guess the, the risks associated with it, then I think it's absolutely fantastic. Um, I think the reality is that it only starts at the top and unless there's any type of risk identified by the board, then why would a company really bother to, you know, with, with the effort of corporate governance? There's so many other areas they need to focus on. It kind of reminds me, and I don't, I've heard this analogy before, but how organizations really took on OH&S and that's now like a company-wide, you know, every, everyone's accountable. Like you have like a OH&S warden, like you have a fire warden on each floor, right? Like why don't we have a cybersecurity warden on each floor who can help identify a phishing attack or just access an SME? I'm not too sure, but maybe in, in the future we'll kind of have that degree. But no, I think, I think it's great and I'd love to see this uh, brought into legislation or brought into law. Yeah, I think the notion of like OH&S and workplace health and safety, you know, is a great sort of parallel, right? And looking at that in terms of an example of, as you say, that it moves out of, you know, a a department's responsibility to a corporate-wide responsibility, um, which then becomes much more aware for that everybody plays a role. And what does that mean? Um, And I think that that's part of then the whole notion of, you know, cybersecurity awareness training as well, right? We, We talk about the fact of making users aware, but it's also like making them feel comfortable and be able to call things out if they see you know the wrong things how do they actually have a mechanism to uh to raise a hand um actually call things out um and then be able to get support for actually what you know what measures would need to be taken to rectify that as well um when you have you know all eyes on something you know you're going to see a lot more you're going to you know and you're going to notice what is happening and then there'll be, you know, hopefully better responses and more transparency of what's actually happening as well from, you know, a company's response to this as well. So 
it feels as though it can only be a good thing, right, of actually increasing that accountability, um, making you know it a company-wide responsibility and having more people involved in that process definitely feels like a good thing um, and you know and if there's ways of you know driving that accountability and ensuring that that happens and getting then the right response to it um, you know hopefully we're on the, on the right path and again help each organization sort of get better um, and, and protect themselves which we know you know protects the the supply chain and protects the community as well um, in terms of that i do think just I mean, moving out loud here, and I'm I'm not sure of the stat. Maybe maybe you might know, Dan. But um, what is the average age of a board member in Australia? Right, like cyber attacks just didn't exist in, in 20 years ago. Like it wasn't a threat that they ever thought about. But I mean, you know, there's been cold wars. There's been many geopolitical times before where where people were scared of the outside. But also, I think to a large degree, Australia's had this great prosperity and, and a great sense of peace and calm over the past 20 to 30 years, really since probably 1991, if, if you will, right? So this is new for us. Uh, this is new for boards. This is new for our staff. So I think, yeah, look, absolutely to your point, like user awareness is, is, is fundamental to this. And I know we keep harping on about it, but if, if I think really out loud, like did, did user awareness cybersecurity awareness training really exists five to ten years ago like i don't think it did did it right like a, a little bit of the tick the box mandatory compliance but definitely not in yeah, terms right. of anything else and and like you say i think it, it also highlights you know i think one putting a focus on it because it's not a natural conversation for the board right as you say but it also highlights the mm. need for diversity of boards right um in terms of profile age demographics you know all different backgrounds in order to to bring different perspectives and make sure that you know they are keeping up to date with what's required as well today so it's uh you know because some of those requirements yeah have very different to and the, the threats and what they're dealing with are very different to, to how things have been in the past we're going to now take a look at two of the, the big breaches of the last sort of uh, a month or so. Um, and we'll start off with uh, Pegasus and um, the notion that spyware has actually been sold to some of the authoritarian governments around the world in order for them to keep track of like some of the activists and journalists and lawyers um, that, uh, that they want to know what's going on and actually keep track of their um, sort of activity and, and uh, communication. What's going on here and what's the implications? I always love the names they give these these tools, Pegasus, uh, different planets, <laughs> and all these one, weird, wonderful, uh, mythical creatures. Um, so Pegasus is one which we've, we've we've heard about for quite a while, and I think we actually spoke about it um, on the show probably a couple of seasons ago. So originally, when it was initially kind of reported, the reason it's hit the news again recently, and I guess sorry for our listeners, just to I guess give a bit of background around Pegasus. So Pegasus is a piece of. Uh, <laughs> law enforcement uh, spyware. <laughs> so the idea is that if you, you, you meant to have a legitimate reason to per, uh, purchase it, you can purchase it off an, a, an Israeli-based uh, security organization. And effectively, it makes use of zero days, which are, I guess, well, at least in the past, were unique to Pegasus, which effectively allows you to, I think it's called zero click, right, where you can effectively just send an SMS, a WhatsApp, an iMessage, some, just like a very kind of benign kind of communication to a phone Without the person interacting with it on the other end at all, you can therefore effectively gain full access to the phone. So the contacts, the messengers, messages, it's effectively a remote access tool, if you will. That's crazy, right? That's that's ridiculous. Um, I know if you, if you think back to um, things like the, I think it was the, the, maybe the Boston Marathon or the San Bernardino shooters over in America, where I think the FBI would 
trying to pay a million dollars to get into the, the iPhone or something and, and they just couldn't and Apple wouldn't unlock it. So this is something which, you know, iPhones are incredibly secure, but to be able to deploy and deliver and gain full access to something with no interaction on the other end is absolutely ridiculous. So it's effectively Aspire as a service. Um, in terms of some of the targets, so allegedly it was the uh, Arab royal family, over 600 politicians and government officials, 64 business executives, um, a whole host of human rights activists, hundreds of journalists and, and over 50,000 phone numbers. Um, I watched a documentary quite a while ago around it, and um, I believe one of the targets was even Jeff Bezos himself. Um, so, yeah. and it, I guess back to that point around accountability and, and kind of governance around some of this type of stuff, like how can anybody protect against this? Like this is what I always think of nation-grade hacking, right? Like these are tools which governments and the mm. richest people in the world can use. That It's not something that anybody can just kind of pick up off the street. No, and it definitely points to the old notion of, you know, information is power, right? Um, and, you know, it is, like you say, pretty scary to think that, you know, that these type of, you know, true spyware activities is going on. And it is the thing that you sort of see maybe in movies or on TV shows and, and sort of, you know, look at what, um, you know, spy agencies might be doing and stuff. But the fact that it's becoming more mainstream, like you say, it's not necessarily mainstream, but definitely more mainstream and spy as a service. I don't think I've heard of that one before, but it's a very scary proposition. Yeah, no, it's just, um, it's, it's, it's absolutely crazy, isn't it? But um, this is the stuff we know about too, right? So <laughs> if you think about the stuff we don't know about listeners, like uh, I probably sound like a conspiracy podcast <laughs> here or something, but that's definitely not the intention. I, I think it's just the reality that we live in a very hyper-connected world and I think it's got great benefits for us you know, like the amount of data you can get on your phone, like you really just need a phone today. You, you don't have to move. You, can, you don't need a computer. You can have one device and you connect it to everything. But I think with that just comes, yeah, uh, an understanding that being connected, your data is out there and you can be the most powerful person in the world and, and still fall victim to, to your privacy. So be careful about what you put up there and, and probably, you know, don't have millions of, of sensitive photos in your iCloud or, or anything too auspicious, I would suggest. Yeah, it's definitely a, a very sort of scary thought. There's no doubting that. And uh, I think as if Gar was here, I think he'd be talking about his tinfoil hat again um, at this stage and uh, and trying to maybe provide an air gap between his iPhone and <laughs> and the world. I'm not sure how that's going to play out for him, but uh, um, but this certainly is it's concerning and. Um, and there's no doubting that this is, you know, again, a developing area that is going to have, you know, keep coming up and have more legs as uh, as we sort of see the implications of how some of this information might get used again as well. So there's no doubting that. The last story we wanted to dive into today um, was looking at the, the Kaseya attack. Um, so Kaseya is an IT solutions developer and um, for MSPs and enterprise clients. Um, and it was announced that it had become a, a victim of a cyber attack on July 2nd. Um, this has been sort of spoken about as the notion of sort of a supply chain ransomware attack um, as because it attacks a, a vendor, a supplier, if you like, but who are part of that ecosystem of supplying to managed service providers. Um, and they're obviously then they're on selling and on delivering services that have become vulnerable um, because of the compromise. Brad, what's, uh, what's happened with the Kaseya attack and what sort of implications can we sort of see rolling out um, into this market and then the implications for people? 
Yeah, it's interesting that the Kasai one, so it's obviously got a lot of publicity because the effect and reach has been so large. Um, some people are drawing some similarities to the Solowin's breach, and personally, I think that's a great comparison because if we think about what Kasai as, as a software does, like it gives you remote access into thousands of computers and effectively allows you to manage something really easy, like how do you deliver desktop support, which is what MSPs do, or a lot of all of them kind of offer as a service. Um, I like to think that these are, perf- you know, they're purpose-designed enterprise software solutions which allow you to gain remote access into computers and pretty much do everything that a hacker would want to do. Um, hackers used to, and they still do, I'm sure, they, they spend a whole range of effort trying to get um, remote access tools, uh, which are usually known bad by every single provider out there, so they spend a lot of time encrypting them, hashing them, and trying to deliver them in, in fancy, clever ways to, to gain access to these systems. But if you can hit the the supply chain, if you can hit somebody who a piece of software which already has remote access into thousands of computers, in my mind, that's a lot easier than trying to individually get these little pieces of software on. Like that's that's huge, right? And if we think about SolarWinds, the scary thing about SolarWinds was that it was undetected for quite a while, or potentially also underreported for quite a while as well, which which led to to, to potentially why the scale was so bad. Um, Kaseya, again, and we, I haven't really looked at the, the timeline of this, and we're probably reporting on this slightly a few weeks after it's happened now, but it makes you wonder about all those other tools there. And I think I was chatting to Gar, but we were chatting to Gar about this the other day, like what happens when TeamViewer gets popped? Like how many TeamViewer endpoints are there around the world? Like TeamViewer is something synonymous with personal users, not just business users. Like, or some, yeah, even something like Skype, right? Like messaging services as well, like starts to raise that question, you know, someone compromises Facebook's back end one day. I mean, maybe they already have. Like, <laughs> it's, a, uh, it's a scary thing, isn't it? Yeah, and it is that flow-on effect. And, and this is, you know, one where, you know, a lot of, you know, small to medium-sized businesses would be supported, you know, through MSPs who they wouldn't even realize, you know, utilizing Kaseya as part of that that solution to them. And all of a sudden, they, they're sort of vulnerable and potentially part of sort of that attack chain. Um, and really have no idea themselves and, and haven't been involved in, you know, making those decisions, purchases, and, and yet they're sort of subject to the risk and, and the attack that's come as well. So you certainly feel for them and, and um, you know, because it's definitely out of their control. So there's no doubting that, like you say, that notion of being able to get in once but to get to many, um, you know, is obviously going to be, you know, very, uh, I, I think, you know, sort of lucrative and a, and a strong sort of, you know, um, presence for attackers to go after because of the scale that they can get to through a single attack rather than, like you say, trying to deploy it multiple, multiple times. I, you made a really good point there, I think, also just in the fact that a lot of these, uh, I guess, the, the, the organisations which were ultimately compromised would have no idea who Kaseya mm. is or even <laughs> it wouldn't appear on like a PO or... or or the logs or the books or anything like that. So, and now we're telling organizations that, you know, your, your board's suddenly going to become more accountable for cybersecurity, where a lot of this stuff is out of your control, like to your point, like you, you don't know about it, but suddenly you're having to deal with the fallout to a degree. So that brings into, I think, a, a, a careful consideration where however they do legislate stuff, we need to make sure that it really is for the benefit of the business and, it, you know, we're not trying to have a, have a blame mm. game because... If it turns into like, you know, just trying to get money for insurance or for tax reasons or whatever it is, then it, then it would delusion to that. But if the ultimate outcome is, look, we want to find out what happened, 
company wants to protect its staff and its clients, then yeah, it, I think it becomes something we all work towards. No, that's a great point. Where does the liability actually lie, right? And uh, that's a that's a difficult one, as to like you say, when you go through those supply chains and look at you know who is responsible and where does that the buck stop. Um, so definitely a lot to to play out in that space. Well, thank you, Brad, for your insights and expert analysis today, and thank you all for listening. Uh, next week's episode will feature a return guest. We have Prescott Pym from Verizon, who will take a deep dive with Gar into the Verizon DBIR report for 2021. In a world of many cyber and threat reports, the Verizon DBIR report is the seminal annual review, and it will be great to hear the trends and insights of the past very eventful year. Also, if you are craving more cybersecurity insights, please check out the Mimecast podcast called Fishy Business. Now, this is produced by Mimecast and Mia team and has a wealth of great guests and knowledge shared. So until next week, stay safe and we'll be in touch again soon.